everybody, welcome to Stock Bites for Monday, August 17th. We have a great show for you today. I interviewed a good friend, Dylan Cox, about his investment strategy. Uh, he invests in ETFs. We talk about why he chooses to, to passively invest versus active, the risks of equity lending inside of ETFs, and the psychology of being a passive investor. To date, we've interviewed a market technician, an options trader, Trades obviously into penny stocks, and I buy and hold equities. I think that the takeaway from all this is that there's several different ways to skin the investing cat, but the cat does have to be skinned. So find the right mix of return, risk, time, and stress level that works with your lifestyle. Uh, just a couple of notes here. Dylan lives in Seattle, which behind San Francisco is the tech capital of the country. Ironically, he has a terrible Wi-Fi connection and his Zoom cut out a few times. So there, there will be a couple of editing cuts that are noticeable and perhaps a few more curse words than usual. Wednesday, Trey and I will be back with another fabulous episode. We're going to check in on his portfolio, his move to Qatar and Life at Berries. That'll be a fun conversation. We also have our first round of stock golf coming out at the end of the week. A former financial advisor turned energy trader and I are going to take to the links and see who can score the lowest through the uh, through the front nine holes. As always, follow us on Twitter at stock underscore bytes. And you can reach us uh, via email at stockbytespodcast at gmail.com. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. It helps. All right, let's get it. Yeah, yeah, we're good. Married life is good, man. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. Um, my wife's from Venezuela, and she, and she... Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, but you're, the video keeps yeah. freezing. On the right. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, my wife's from Venezuela, and, you know, obviously Venezuelans, Latin America, very tan, beautiful skin... Uh-huh. And so they can get away with wearing much shorter bathing suits than the typical white guy can, because I got white guy legs, you know. Yeah, you look above my knee; it's it's scary above my knee. It gets white <laughs> real fast. So uh, my my wife's mother, my mother in law, comes back from this is before we were married. Comes back from Venezuela and brings me these Venezuelan bathing trunks. <laughs> that literally they go down a couple inches below my ass cheeks, man. It is, and this is what everybody wears down there. They're super popular um, because they have just one color leg for the most part. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not like this dichotomy. So I didn't, I, I tried them on. I said, there's no way I can do this. And I didn't wear them until today. And that was three years ago. <laughs> and I had the, you know, I got a kid with her now. We're married. Like she's not going anywhere. Right. I don't have to worry about my skinny white legs poking out from the bottom of these <laughs> goofy bathing suit shorts. So it, it's a funny story, but the, and I'm sure you experience it too with your girlfriend. Just you know, being being able to be comfortable with somebody is a special thing. And, and not have to worry about the color of your legs and the length of your bathing suit. You know, it's, it's fun. 
being able to be yourself or to walk around the house in boxers and not care or any of that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, how's, uh, how's Seattle, man? You've been, good. The, you've been on the road the last couple of weeks. Yeah. When we were talking a couple of weeks ago, I was in the middle of that trip and we just got back. We got back to Seattle Tuesday evening. So we've been back not even a week. Um, and it was almost exactly six weeks that we had been gone. Um, but a really fun trip. We did, uh, you know, we did Montana for two and a half weeks, did a little bit of Wyoming. We did Minnesota for two weeks, went up to the Boundary Waters, did some fishing and camping there, did some backpacking, met up with my brother in Idaho for a long weekend. We were kind of all over, but lots of driving time. You know, like I was mentioning, when, when I would call you, it would be, you know, hour one of a five-hour drive. Yeah. And that was after working a full day, and we'd do that, you know, eight hour day, five hour drive, like four or five days in a row just to get back from Minneapolis to the West coast. So I'm definitely happy to be, um, kind of in one place for a few weeks again. So this was like, we're working remote. It's COVID time. We might as well just travel. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, take advantage of the situation the best we can. Might as well go see some friends and family, go spend some time outside, see a new place we've never been to before. So were any places open? Uh, yeah. I mean, we'd go to towns and, you know, like half the bars and restaurants would be closed. Um, but we stayed for the most part in Airbnbs, either with family or in Airbnbs. Um, and then it was, you know, it was kind of like mass protocol or put on some gloves when you're at a gas station sort of thing. Yeah. Be careful. It sounds like a lot of fun. We've been super nervous about traveling. Um, yeah. And then going Rightfully so. You know, if you go to Dallas and you go see your, you know, parents-in-law, what are you going to do? You just got to hang yeah. out. And just, you know, first of all, it's a hundred fucking degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and so no one can eat outside on a patio and kind yeah. of be distanced that way. Have to be right. inside. Yeah. Yeah. We've been pretty lucky that, you know, we're, we're both in our twenties and relatively low risk ourselves trying not to spread it to other people, but, um, been pretty lucky in terms of the stage of life that we're in right now during all of this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, having a baby, the, the, the good thing about having a baby during a pandemic is it gives you something to do while you're at home. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the bad thing about it is you have a baby in the middle yeah. of a pandemic and <laughs> your stress level goes up pretty quickly. Yeah. How old is your son now? Four, four and a half months. Okay. He's a little swimmer, man. We, we have a pool, a pool right outside our, uh, right outside our condo here. And I think he just went right now for the eighth time in three days. He's kicking, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's got little ar- little arms flapping. He's he's digging it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. The best that's part is it, it wipes him out. There's no gravity in a pool, or I guess there's reduced gravity, so he can move. Sure. He's exercising. Yeah. And when he gets out, he's he's done. You just wrap him up in a towel like a little burrito, and, and he just goes to sleep. <laughs> nap time. It's always nap time when you're an infant. Dude, tell me, uh, tell me about your 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 strategy here. It's a terrible transition, but let's get into it. I'm interested to hear why you invest in the things that you invest in. Oh boy! Um, first, I should say you're going to expose me as a fraud in how lazy I am and how little I know about my own portfolio. But um, I guess I, I was thinking about this today. Why do I mostly invest in ETFs? And I suppose it's because I think that markets are mostly efficient. 
And even if they're not totally efficient, I don't think that I'm the person to identify the inefficiencies or it's not, it's not worth the extra effort to me to get a, mm-hmm. a couple hundred basis points of, of extra return in my portfolio. I'd rather spend my time, you know, doing something else, you know, going backpacking or just hanging out with friends. Yeah. How long have you been investing? Uh, since I've had enough disposable income. So, uh, since I started working after college, I suppose, um, I've had a, a either, either a retirement account or, or, yeah. or a little brokerage account on the side. And you sent me tickers for SPY, which is a ETF that tracks the S and P 500 S C H E, uh, the Schwab emerging markets ETF. And then IWO, the iShares Russell 2000 growth, which is a small cap growth ETF. Are those only three that you're investing in? No, no, there's, there's a handful of others, but I thought those were a kind of a, you know, emblematic of, of the entire portfolios, um, a bit of small cap, bit of large cap, bit of growth, uh, you know, us and global just kind of, yeah. kind of all around, you know, get exposure to the whole market. How do you, I mean, so every month, is it just automatically set up through whoever you're using where they, they take the money out of your bank account and put it in? Or how do you decide what percentage to put where? Are you, do you ever get tactical? You know, do you ever go, oh shit, you know, the coronavirus is starting in China. Maybe I should peel back a little bit on my emerging markets ETF. Uh, no, I'm never tactical. I sort of, uh, you know, I'm a buy and hold sort of uh, long-term investor, I suppose. I don't know if that's because I really believe that's that's the best way to manage your own portfolio or just because I'm lazy and I don't like to go to my brokerage account and trade too much. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll transfer um, whatever I can. I have an automatic transfer set up each month uh, to my brokerage account, uh, mostly to make sure that money makes it to my brokerage account and that it becomes invested at some point, you know, kind of get it out of sight, out of mind. It's yeah. not there to spend. It's going to be invested if it's in that account. Um, and then, you know, every once in a while I'll log in and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll think, you know, it's the middle of the, it's March or April, it's the middle of the pandemic markets are down 20% or whatever they were from their highs. It's probably a good time to buy the S and P 500. Right. Um, but for the most part, it's sort of this dollar cost averaging, but also whenever I happen to log in and remember to manage the account, uh, there's no true, uh, formula to it all. It's, it's. You know, if I can convince myself to be investing, I, I figure that's better than nothing at all. Do you have any bond ETFs? Uh, no, I, I think I might in a 401k, but that's managed by, by a third party. But no, I, in general, you know, for someone with my risk tolerance um, and sort of length of time I'm likely to have until retirement, um, I just think that expected return on equities in the long run are, are higher than they would be on bonds and I can, you know, withstand some volatility in the short run. Yeah. I was reading right before we got on uh, an article in Barron's talking about pension funds and modern mm-hmm. portfolio theory, just basically driven the financial markets for the last 60 years. It's basically saying, you know, 60, 40 portfolio, 60% equity, 40% bonds is going to average 10% a year. Uh, the bonds are going to diversify you limit volatility. And this is what pension funds use for their a lot of their portfolio allocation. And even from, so from 2008 to now, uh, 
which is the tail end of a bond bull market and the longest equity bull market in history. The 60-40 portfolio underperformed the S&P by about 5%. I think it was like 4.5% compound annual growth rate, CAGR. CAGR, yeah. CAGR, whatever that's called. And yeah, I, I did a pod maybe a month ago just talking about whether or not millennials should own bonds. And I think that the answer is no. And when you look at, look, they're supposed to diversify you. Well, when the shit hits the fan, they're not. You know, in March, coronavirus happens. Bonds are selling off along with gold, along with equity as everybody's moving into cash. And they're supposed to give you income, which you're not really doing that anymore either. Because interest rates are so low. Right. Like your, uh, your emerging market ETFs got a 2.73% yield. That is 2% higher than the 10-year treasury. Plus you get, you know, all the upside of, uh, of equity and sure. So I, I don't get it either. And, you know, for if you're, once you move into retirement and you're like, all right, uh, I need to hit, you know, in 10 years, I'm going to have, I need to have this much money. coming. I, I can get how it benefits you there, like peace of mind, like you're talking about with what your strategy is. Like we need to have this much money coming due. Are you, are you, am I done? Can you hear me? Now, now you're back. Son you're of back. a bitch. Dang it. This is going to be an interesting pod. <laughs> you gotta have some real editing work to do. <laughs> why did why are the why are the bars by your name red? I don't know what that means. That's they are on my screen as well. I think it means our connection's not great. Yeah. Ah, fuck it, man. Let's power through. We can do it. The, the so people, the people wanted, will listen nonetheless. Wanted to talk to you about. I think a, an uncommon, not an uncommon risk, a very common risk in ETFs that people may not know about, which is some ETFs, some companies, well, hell, all companies do this, but they lend the, how do I say this? It varies from company, company to company, the percentage of, of equity that they'll lend out from one of their ETFs. BlackRock will lend out up to 15% of the, of the equities in an ETF. To short sellers? Right. And, you know, Vanguard will lend out somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 3%. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, if you can name a financial product that doesn't fuck the consumer, <sighs> I don't know. I'll give you a hand job. Like, I, <laughs> and ETFs so far have been... Look, you reduce fees, you're tracking the index, there's no human element to it at all. But something that is not brought up very often is that they are lending securities to short sellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and I'm going to explain that just for two seconds. Like, if I, if I have 10 grapes and you buy the 10 grapes from me for $1 and then you turn around and sell them to your brother because you know that next week the price of grapes is going to be 80 cents for 10 grapes. So you sell them to your brother. He pays you a buck next week. The price of grapes goes down to 80 cents. You take your buck that you have, you buy the grapes back, you give them back to me. You made 20 cents, right? There's there's that introduces a whole host of other risks to the people who hold the ETFs. Um, you know, what happens if you go bankrupt in that one week? What happens sure. if 
yeah, I don't know. Like, do, do does that worry you at all? Is there any? Is this just like, you know, fuck it, we can't do anything about it. This is still the best investing vehicle that we have, and and you just you know out of sight, out of mind, sort of thing. Does that bother you at all? So first, I got to say, I think that was the best, most concise description of short selling I've ever heard. I'm not sure I could describe it so well, uh, but that was one of my questions for you coming in. Is um, I don't know much about the mechanism behind how ETFs hold those hold those equities, hold those securities, and who bears any risk. Uh, it sounds like you're saying it'd be me owning the ETF if that I bear risk because they're lending out some of those shares. But it doesn't bother me a whole lot. You know, it's um, I suppose in that case you'd be you know if it's uh, BlackRock or Russell or whoever runs this ETF, uh, you'd be betting that BlackRock isn't good for it. Though I don't know if that's legally the case uh but no i I suppose not you know it's i'd rather be buying that etf and and maybe bear some of that risk uh than say paying an active mutual fund manager uh to be trying to beat the market so i think what happens is when you buy the grapes from me you have to give me collateral right you have to give me a dollar um and so in that case, if you go bankrupt in between now and the time you give the grapes back to me, I have your dollar and I can, you know, it, it's not going to affect my shareholders. Assuming that the price of the grapes hasn't skyrocketed since I sold them to you. Mm-hmm. And just for, uh, I think some context, BlackRock has had three defaults on selling securities from ETFs over the last 10 or 15 years. And in each case, they had no negative impact to their shareholders because they had, I think they collect like 102% collateral and whatever. But I don't, what I don't get is, you know, I hear all the time about like Tesla, there's a short squeeze happening in Tesla, which is jacking the, the price of Tesla up. What happens if that hap, you know, if, if there's a short squeeze, meaning instead of the price of grapes going down to 80 cents, they're going up to a dollar and 50 cents. And you're like, Oh shit, I need to close up my position right now. Mm-hmm. I have to go buy the grapes back at a higher price so that I can give them back to, to the person who lent them to me, which just creates this kind of rolling cycle of higher prices. I don't know what would happen in that situation. If you default, what, what happens? And, you know, and if it's 50, you know, into the world, 15% of BlackRock's, you know, S&P 500 fund is, is being lent out and there's a wave of defaults. Mm-hmm. It's going to have a negative impact, right? I, I suppose it could. And it's easier to imagine that happening for one stock for Tesla, say, I suppose, yeah. in the news lot. But it's harder to, for me to imagine that happening for the S&P 500, right? Yeah. For the Russell 2000, for that when there's that many names involved, um, it seems like there'd be enough liquidity. Uh, who's to say? I have no idea what the sort of, uh, I guess, stats are in institutional ownership of, of these names uh, or, you know, how that plays in. Yeah, and it, you would need, in order for that to happen, I think you would need the entire market to just go parabolic up. If it goes down, you're okay. Right? Because the short seller wins and then nobody, you're getting your money back anyway. What, uh, how, how do you think, how would you compare your sleep at night to somebody <laughs> who plays penny stocks? Uh, 
Hard to say. Hopefully better. Hopefully better. <laughs> th- hopefully better than me in an alternative universe where I'm investing in penny stocks. Yeah. Uh, or you know, you know, just you know, you know, leveraging my own portfolio and buying call options on whatever new Robinhood stock of the day is. Uh, but that, that's part of the reason I think I'm such a passive investor um, is that I don't feel the need to be checking in on my portfolio. I don't really think it helps me to check in on the portfolio and trade in and out of positions. Uh, I can just, you know, set it and forget it sort of thing. Um, you know, and I, I sort of believe there, you know, in the long run, there should be positive returns to equities. And so if you're invested in a lot of them, you should be doing okay over time. Um, so I don't worry too much about, you know, any one position. I'm not super concentrated in any one position. But I did have a, a, an interesting conversation with a friend a couple of days ago. You know, the, the topic of diversification in general got brought up and he made the point that, you know, diversification is probably good for most people. But his opinion was that you don't build wealth through diversification. You build wealth through concentration. And I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, you know, you could also lose wealth through concentration, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, it depends on whether, you know, you want to, you want to be, you want to get filthy rich or whether you want to have a sort of comfortable, modest, uh, but potentially wealthy life as to your sort of philosophy on, on how concentrated you want to be. Did he define wealth? <laughs> no, I should have asked him to. That's, that's an interesting, he's right. You know, right, you're, you're not likely to become a billionaire by buying the S and P 500, right? Right. You Every take month putting, in portfolio. putting pieces of your check into the S and P and IWO and yeah, that'll give you a very nice retirement 40 years from now. Sure. So are you going for a very nice retirement or are you trying to, you know, buy the hundred million dollar penthouse on park Avenue or whatever it is? Yeah. I'd like that. well dude the i think the case in point is bitcoin Mm -hmm. the people who you know if you i remember reading this this is in 2017 if you just put your ira contribution in 2012 into bitcoin you know 5500 bucks you would have been a multimillionaire five years or six years later Mm -hmm. Um, but hindsight is 2020 right yeah you could have you could have put you know your ira contribution and into pets.com in 2000 or, or whatever yeah. it was and goes the other direction or eBay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, what's, what's been the most challenging piece of your investing? Mm, I guess being patient or, uh, you know, trying to stick with it in the long run and not, you know, convincing yourself that it's important to continue putting money away and to keep investing. And, you know, I, I feel very lucky that I'm in a position to be able to, put some money away to, to have a portfolio. Um, but, you know, kind of hacking your own behaviors to get yourself to actually do that and stick with it, I think is probably the most important thing in my mind. Um, not so much what you're buying, but just that you are investing in the first yeah. place. As opposed to what, just, you know, buying 30, 30 racks with your boys on the weekends and, and shit like that and pissing it away. Hawaiian vacations yeah. or, you know, fancy cars or any of that kind of stuff. I, you know, to me, it's more of a life philosophy about what matters to you and what you want to spend your money on. 
So um, how did you how did you figure that out? I'm not sure. I totally have. It's a it's always a work in progress. But I'm sort of. Uh, are you familiar with Mr. Money Mustache? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Mr. Money Mustache. You trying it's, to fire? What's that? Are you trying no, to fire? I'm not trying to fire. Though I I sort of dabbled in that movement for a while. I, I would say that I borrow a lot of ideas. There you go. You're back. How about now? Good. Yeah. All right. Mr. All right, Money Mustache. And I, let me just let me set this up. Fire sure. is financial independence. Retire early, right? And they're they sure. they teach you to budget, to control your expenses, to invest. And it's all, or for the most part, it's mostly ETFs, it's passive investing. And the goal is to be able to retire from your job that you don't like when you're 35 or 40 or 45 or whatever, and then start, you know, your, your next career, your retirement and and really go after your passions. Sure. Exactly. So I, I sort of dabbled in, you know, Mr. Money Mustache and that movement for a while. I, I wouldn't call myself a fire, so to speak, uh, but I sort of use a lot of their principles in my investing. Um, I suppose that's mostly, you know, focus on what you can control. So you can control transferring money every, every month to your brokerage account and you can control, you know, I'm going to buy whatever ETF it is, whatever index on this same day every month because I believe that's a good long-term plan but I can't necessarily control what happens after that. Another example might be, you know, I can, I can save $20 by not going out to eat tonight. Um, but I can't control what that $20 turns into 40 years from now, if I put it in the market. So I think sort of, sort of focusing on what's within your realm of control, getting back to your earlier question, uh, helps me sleep at night. Um, you know, just not worrying about those, those uncontrollables. You may have met Trey, he grew up across the street from me, and we, we do a show every week together where we go over what happened on Robin Hood for the previous week, and he talks about some of the penny stocks that he plays. He's in uh-huh. Dubai, and so he's nine hours ahead. So for him, the market closes at, was that 12.30 every night? Something like that, but it's late. And he's up at like 6 a.m., 7 a.m., teaching classes, and it is such a stressful experience for him. He's doing very well. You know, he, he's up like 50, 60% over the last couple of years. Um, but we, I was just talking to him about it last week. The, you know, what, at what point is it not worth it? At what point does the mental toll, the physical, you know, the unhealthiness of not sleeping, it wouldn't it just be easier to, to buy some ETFs and, and just let it ride. And for, for him, um, I think, of, and maybe some people are, do you gamble? Do you, do you sports bet? Do you, do you go to casinos or anything like that? I don't sports bet. I'll play blackjack on occasion, but I wouldn't consider myself a gambler. Yeah, me neither. But some people really dig that. The, the, right. They feed off the maybe it's like the original social media where you just where you get that dopamine hit or, or something. Oh like yeah, that. but yeah, Robinhood or day trading or buying yeah. penny stocks is not all that different from being in a casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that he he really feeds off of the adrenaline rush. Um, oh yeah, and, and you know, good for him. He, he's done well. I can't I can't do that. It, so right. 
and another piece of this is everybody, you need to find your own investment lane. I can't, I've, I suck at picking penny stocks. I suck at options. I'm pretty good at picking a portfolio of equities to hold, mm-hmm. you know, and that works for me. And we're 10, you know, five to 10% over the S&P, that's good. We're not 60% over the S&P, but we're not 60% below it either. And right, you know, and, and that works. And it, and it just with my time commitments and the, and the stress level that I want to have with all this, it all kind of fits into a nice little package there. So I think that's really important. Do you, do you go on Reddit at all? <laughs> no, I'm not. You know, I've, I've seen, I, what is it? Wall Street bets is the, yeah. uh, is the subreddit where, you know, some of the various others kind of like Fintwit and things like that. I, I'm familiar with them, but I, I certainly don't use them. Yeah. Would you say that your investment strategy and your discipline is common amongst the people that you associate with and, and maybe even more broadly speaking amongst, amongst people in their mid-20s? Um, I don't know if it's common, but I think it's becoming more common um, for, for folks my age to have a maybe a more passive investing approach. Um, you know, if you look back at uh, Jack Bogle's ideas, who founded Vanguard, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. were very, had become, I would say, very mainstream, whereas they were very edgy 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and, you know, that would just be buying mutual funds as, as opposed to buying individual stocks and sort of optimizing for a low cost portfolio. Um, but I think a lot of folks my age, I don't know. A, a lot of folks I don't, I think don't think about their portfolios that much. They're happy to have a 401k and set some money aside and have someone else manage it. And like you were saying, go on with the rest of your life and, and sort of, um, you know, be happy spending your time on things that aren't investing, sort of leaving it to the pros, so to speak. Yeah. At the same time, I have good friends who, who are day traders and who trade leverage options in their own personal portfolios and who are essentially gambling addicts uh, and will probably always be that way. And it might turn out really well for them or it might turn out really poorly, but that's not, you know, that's not really how I want to conduct my day to day. I think that it's very easy to be a D I say very easy and I, I still can't figure it out, but it's certainly much easier to be a day trader in the middle of the longest bull market in history. Mm-hmm. And that it won't be like this forever. Do you think that um, all, all the struggles with social security and like, I'm not betting on that to be here. And it's a very publicized thing that we're going to, I'm going to send the fucking Verizon guy to, I'm going to call Bill Gates tell him to install some more goddamn wireless towers and see how now. This is bullshit. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you back? I'm back. Can you hear me? <laughs> I've just taken to cursing you out whenever the whenever the feed goes. <laughs> Try to make it interesting. <laughs> How about now? Yeah, I got you. All right, cool, cool. Do, do you think right. that uh, there's more awareness for people in their 20s to start investing because people are living longer, social securities? may not be here and more of the, and pensions are gone, right? So the more of the onus is on us. I'm not saying that we get more education about it, but there's certainly more news stories about how the financial system is in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have no idea. I don't know what the data says on, you know, whether folks in their 20s and 30s are more likely to invest today than they used to be. I've seen a lot of data saying that millennials are less likely to own homes or at least are, you know, foregoing buying their first house for a few years. A lot of the sort of anecdotal evidence for that seemed to be global financial crisis put a lot of millennials on unstable financial footing, which makes sense to me. Yeah. that, that then you wouldn't be able to buy your first home. Um, that brings up another interesting point is that I think so many, it, it seems to be a very American idea to own a home. And so many folks, I think, view their retirement or financial well-being as, uh, as being wrapped up in owning a home and having a mortgage. Um, though I'm not sure that's the way it should be. You may be better off, uh, you know, buying equities or, or just having a diversified bond portfolio. I don't know if that's the case, but the counter argument there is it's easier to sleep at night. Going back to one of your first questions, if you have a home that's fully paid for, uh, yeah. not a portfolio of equities that you have no control over. Yeah, and, and when you get to retirement, one of the, your biggest expense is going to be your living expense. I think you know, unless some you medical have some, expenses, some crazy medical issue, but. Mm-hmm you know, you get on the government programs, Medicare, Medicaid, that sort of stuff. And, you know, you're not, dude, fucking uh, uh, Obamacare, 800 bucks a month for me, for my family. It's fucking crazy. Anyway, but the, you know, you buy the house so you can pay it off and you can limit your, that's one less expense that you have to pay Mm -hmm. mortgage or rent. And there are some really great, like uh, rent versus buy spreadsheets and calculators out there. All you got to mm-hmm. do do is Google it, you know, rent versus buy. And then you go and plug in your rent and the property tax and the sales price and your down payment and all that shit. It'll tell you whether or not you're making a good decision. And it may not be for everybody, but. Yeah. So, so what would be your thought process as to, you know, how low do interest rates have to get or, you know, there, there's property taxes and maintenance and all of that sort of stuff versus uh, continuing to pay rent on, on an apartment or condo. People don't want to pay rent, man. The reason that we're paying rent is because our wages have stagnated. The price of real estate has continued to go up. And, you know, we have more as, as a, as a generation, we have more student loan debt than, Anybody. And sure. out on top of, of that, when I was, when I was 18, uh, Bank of America sent me a credit card. I had no job. I had no way to repay it. I maxed it out in about two weeks and I had to settle. It was an $800 limit. And I fucking settled when I was 23. I had to pay them 500 bucks and it fucked up my credit and all this sort of shit. We get no education. My, my high school economics teacher was the baseball coach. I got really good at taking people's lunch money playing cards that's what we did in economics right so all the all these things combined with no 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 it's all all those things together student loan debt stagnating wages uh you know we're in order to buy a house you have to be financially stable in order to get married it's a good idea to to be financially stable. And so that's, that's one piece of it. I think the other piece might be that our parents are the best, we're the best generation ever. 
for us to grow up as kids in. They were home for the most part. You know, they, they didn't beat us. And that does, it helps you grow into more, into a more cultured and nicer human. And our kids, my kids are going to be even nicer, but there, there is something to having the dad who, you know, works at the factory and comes home and is smoking cigarettes inside and slapping you in the face with your, you know, with a spatula, if you're not eating your food, right? Like having a, there, there are experiences in your childhood that people, people growing up in the 40s and 50s had that we don't. And it, it helps us with awareness and emotional connection with people. But I think it also, uh, having that sort of upbringing retards your, you know, it slows your maturity level. A little bit because mm-hmm. you don't when you're 15 you don't have to be the quote-unquote man of the house because your dad got his arm cut off at a you know at a, at a steel plant do you anyway. are you familiar with uh morgan housel no he's a great one of my favorite financial writers one of the best financial writers in the world right now he used to work for the wall street journal i think he's at a venture capital fund called the collaborative fund right now yeah. anyways he put out a lot of great research about how your behaviors as an investor for the most part have nothing to do with your actual decisions. They're all uh, a function of what environment you grew up in. And it's not so much the, the family life that you grew up in. Maybe that has something to do with it, but he points to the generation that came of age during the great depression and a lot of data that shows that they really avoided financial markets for the most part for the rest of their lives because they were very distrustful of stocks and bonds because you know it's having been the cause of the of the great depression um and then he he talks about folks i think it's coming back from from world war ii and sort of the um you know great industrial push that happened post world war ii and about how that generation missed out in the great depression but came of age in an era that was relatively more prosperous and therefore was more likely to engage with financial markets so i don't think we all I don't think we as individuals have as much control over this as we might like to think, but we're a product of the generation that we came through. Yes. Yes, exactly. And as financial markets get more complicated, there's different and bigger ways for the people who control them to fuck us, <laughs> which is what I was talking about with wage, you know, wage stagnation and, and, you know, you just, Go pull up a chart of wages versus home prices over the last 30 years, and you'll be shocked. You know, and you add in colleges. Anyway, Morgan Housel, H-O-U-H-O-U-S-E-L. If I'm not mistaken, great writer. He puts out a piece every every week or two. But yeah, you're talking about the the famous chart that, that shows wages now and then price of homes in the U.S., price of healthcare, price of college tuition. No one can see my hands right now, but those are all going yes. up. Just have stayed the same, <laughs> uh, and and you know inflation for household items or a, a ticket to see a movie or even a car or whatever it is has has been relatively low. But it's it's those big ticket items that are that yeah. make it really difficult for most folks. Yeah, and there's and there's been there's been inflation in the market, which is really the main way that we, not the main way, but one of the ways that we can actually 
get a leg up, right? Financial assets have inflated. And if you look at mm-hmm. the PE multiples of any one of these companies, Apple's trading at over 40 times forward earnings. Right. All the, all the growth of the last few years has been multiple expansion, not earnings right. growth sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Which, if you have money in, that helps you. But for the most part, the people who own those equities are the, the big wealthy investors anyway. So I think we're getting a, a, little, a little off into philosophical psychology 101 here. Oh, that's all right. That's the fun stuff. Yeah. Well, Dylan, I enjoyed this. I hope you did. Your mustache, did your mustache looks awesome, man. Is, well, is that a, is, I appreciate you saying that. Is it a, is it not a Fu Manchu? It's, that's, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. It's not quite handlebars yet, but, uh, you know. Any wax? Can you no wax. twist it out? No, I, I, I've thought about dabbling with that, but, you know, I, the mustache is being encouraged for the time being, so I'm going to try and, you know, keep it trim, keep it under control, let everyone get used to it, and then see see if I can do any, anything. <laughs> see how weird you can get? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, dude, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on with me today. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was a blast. Hi, your shoes, got a red dress on. Tonight